Blood on the River, Chapter 23. This is a quote for primary evidence, a quote by Chief Powhatan in William Simmons' edition, The Proceedings. Quote, What will it avail you to take that by force you may quickly have by love, or to destroy them that provide you food? What can you get by war when we can hide our provisions and fly to the woods, whereby you must famish by wronging us, your friends? Chapter 23. If trouble can multiply like rats in grain, then that is what our troubles do in 1609. By midsummer, Captain Smith sends word to the Warawasuk village that we are to return to Jamestown. A ship has arrived, so there is food. There is also much work to be done. We need to build houses for the new colonists. When I get to Jamestown, I am stunned by what I see. The Virginia Company has not only sent only men, but families with women and children. Richard and I watch as two women meet in front of a cabin to talk for a moment. One holds a baby on her hip and the other has a little boy of four or five clinging to her skirts. I shake my head. How could they, how could they do this? I wonder out loud to Richard. It must be because no one is allowed to say anything but bad about Jamestown and their letters back home, says Richard. I nod. The Virginia Company lies to them about how it is paradise here and how they will find mountains of gold and they believe the lies. The little boy sees us and grins around the thumb he has stuck in his mouth. I wonder if he will live through the winter. It is strange for me to be living with Englishmen again instead of Warasoyox. Not even Namantok is with us anymore. It is hard to get used to eating only at meal times and having my food rationed again. I cut the long side of my hair and go back to wearing English clothes. I keep my bow, arrows, and moccasins in a corner of my cabin, but I still wear the buckskin carrying pouch with my knife instead inside hanging at my waist. Some nights I dream that I am back in the Warasoyak village or hunting with Kainta and, and Namantok in a quiet snow-filled forest. It is good to see Anne and John Layden again. When I first see Anne, my jaw drops, and I think John must have been giving her all of his food rations along with her own, because she is very big around the middle. Richard sees my mouth open and elbows me so that I shut it before Anne sees. She's going to have a baby, he whispers. I blush at my ignorance. I'm glad Richard warned me before I said something to embarrass her. The ships keep arriving. The rumor is that the Virginia Company is tired of sending a few colonists and having most of them die off. So they are sending a lot, and women too, so that even if many die, the colony will still survive. By summer's end, we have nearly 500 colonists to feed and house. We also have horses, cows, goats, sheep, more hogs, more chickens, and more dogs and cats. There is hardly room to step without landing on someone's foot a squawking chicken, or a pile of cow dung. We cannot get the houses built fast enough, and we are crammed together almost the way we were on the tween deck of the Susan Constant. Arguments flare up nearly every day. The ships have also brought us back, Captain Archer and Captain Ratcliffe. They make no secret of the fact that they hate Captain Smith and want to be rid of him. There is a new charter, they say, sent by the Virginia Company. The charter says instead of a president and a council, we will have one governor to rule us. That governor is, for now, Sir Thomas Gates. Then next year, Sir Thomas West, Lord de Loire, 
will arrive to become our Lord Governor and Captain General. Sir Thomas Gates is on his way to Jamestown on the flagship, the San Venture. Step down from our office as president, they order Captain Smith. Captain Smith demands to see this new charter. Captain Radcliffe folds his arms over his chest. It is honest the sea venture of Sir Thomas Gates, he says. You will see it soon enough. But the days go by and the sea venture does not arrive. Captain Smith insists he is still our president. Now I see what it means that power is like weights in a balance, and when someone gains power, someone else loses power. The Sir Thomas, this Sir Thomas Gates, our new governor, has gained power even though he's still somewhere out at sea, and so Captain Smith has lost power. The new colonists do not respect him. When he tries to explain our delicate relationship with the Indians, how we trade and work to keep a fragile peace, they scoff at him. Those savages will understand the power of a musket. That's all they need to know, they say. The day I see smoke rising over the treetops, I know something has gone terribly wrong. Two of the new settlers come straggling into the fort, dragging wooden clubs, their faces smudged with soot. Did you see the savage's expression when I lit up his house? One man asks the other. He makes a mock, terrified face and takes a few running steps as if he is escaping something. Ha! And look at this, the other man says. I found in a house with a bunch of bones, as if the dead men could take it with all with him. He pours out the contents of a sack. Necklaces of shiny beads, copper, and tiny beautiful shells go scattering over the ground. I stare in horror. They have robbed the Indians' temples taken the jewels from the bodies of their dead Warawances, set their houses on fire. How many do you think we killed? One is asking the other, holding up his club and examining it. My legs go weak. The club is stained with blood. I don't stay to hear the answer, but run to Captain Smith's cabin. My throat is tight with rage, but I choke out the words. The new settlers, I say, they're killing and burning, Captain Smith marches to where the two men are still gloating, telling of their escapades to anyone who will listen. Captain Smith's glowering eyes silence the men at once. He demands to hear it all, and the men sheepishly give a full account. A group of our colonists have burned the natives' houses, stolen from their gardens, robbed valuables from their temples, beat the people with clubs, and shot them with muskets. The natives have become furious and killed some of our colonists, and so the Englishmen feel they have the right to do more killing and burning and stealing. I want to shout at them. How could they do this? They don't care that the natives have saved us from starvation over and over again. They don't care that Chief Powhatan himself saved us from freezing and hunger when all of our houses burned. They have no hearts, only pride and a feeling that they are superior. They say the natives are savages, but in truth, these ignorant Englishmen are the savages. Captain Smith is as angry as I am. Are you trying to start an all-out war with the natives, he shouts, with 10,000 of them and a few hundred of us? Are you insane? I can see it in his eyes, the fury and the rage. He wants to punch something, beat someone's face, and punish the men who've done this. Then I see him do the same thing he did so long ago on the ship the day Master Wingfield ordered him arrested. 
He narrows his eyes. He must be focusing his anger, I think. He's devising a plan to try to change all of this. I will go up the river and talk to the tribes these men have wronged, he says. I will work to make peace again. If I do not, it could be the end of our settlement. Captain Smith gathers a few men to sail upriver with him in the shallop. He chooses several men who have been here since the beginning. Then two of the new settlers, both gentlemen, tell him how much they want to help make peace with the Powhatans. They badger Captain Smith to take them along. Finally, he retreats. He relents. I think these two gentlemen just want to get away from our crowded fort and go exploring. Then a new thought strikes me. What if they are not just bored young men who want an adventure? What if they are under the influence of Captain Radcliffe, Captain Archer, and the others who hate Captain Smith? What if they plan to do him harm? The morning they leave, I watch the shallops sail away. There are six of them in the boat, and I am glad to see that three of them are Captain Smith's trusted friends. Still, the uneasy feeling does not leave me. So I think I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 24. So you'll have two chapters this time. So chapter 24, William Simmons, The Proceedings. Sleeping in his boat, accidentally, some, one fired his powder bag, which tore the flesh from his body and thighs, nine of ten inches square, in a most pitiful manner. But to quench the tormenting fire, frying him in his clothes, he leaped overboard into the deep river where they could recover him. He was near, he was near drowned. That was a piece of primary evidence, which means that it came from an actual piece of writing um, from William Simmons that during that time. Um, so let's read on chapter 24. They say it was an accident. No one's fault. Captain Smith lay down in the boat to take a nap. He was still wearing his powder bag. While he slept, a spark must have lit the powder bag. A spark from someone's pipe or from the slow match on someone's musket. The powder caught fire and exploded. It seared the flesh right off of his leg. In agony, Captain Smith leaped overboard to cool the burn. His leg was so badly injured and he was so weak that he nearly drowned before the men could pull him out. When Captain Smith comes back to us, he is crazed with pain, moaning in a delirium. Three men carrying him carry him into the fort. The flesh on his thighs burned black and red, the skin hanging ragged and oozing. He's, he is our fallen leader, and he has fallen all the way down. The doctor gives Captain Smith medicine to ease the terrible pain, and it makes him sleep most of the day. When he is awake, I bring him food and water. When the doctor changes his bandages, I give Captain Smith the handle of a wooden spoon to bite on so that he can endure the pain. I'm surprised he's not bitten through the wood yet. It is awful to see him in so much agony. I wish his bandages, rinsing out the blood and ooze. Oh, I wash his bandages, rinsing out the blood and ooze and hang them to dry. One of the soldiers tells me that before he was injured, Captain Smith was able to make peace with Parahunt, the Warawanse of a village that has been ransacked by our colonists. 
But, the soldier confides in me, the peace cannot last. There's been too much killing on both sides, and everyone is too angry. One day I bring Captain Smith a drink of water. As I help him to sit up, he goes pale, and beads of sweat break out on his face. I keep hold of the goblet in case he blacks out. They have cut off my hands and cut out my tongue, he says in a hoarse whisper. I shake my head. I don't know if he's fully awake or in a delirium. I want to tell him he still has his hands and his tongue. But, sir, go get Richard, he says. I run down to the river where Richard is repairing fishnets. Richard, I call out. Come quickly. He splashes through the water to meet me. I'm panting out of breath. What is it? Is it Captain Smith? He asks. Yes, I mean no. He has not died. He is saying strange things. He asked for you. We both run up the river bank to the fort. We enter the cabin quietly. Sir, we are both here. Me and Richard, I say. Good, he says without opening his eyes. He takes a deep breath as if he's gathering his strength. <sighs> they have taken away my power here, he says. I can no longer use my hands and my words to help the colony. There's nothing more I can do. I will return to England. His words hit me like a punch in the stomach. Return to England? Richard, he says, and Richard stands up straighter. You will accompany me to England. I saw how you cared for Reverend Hunt in his illness, and I know you will do the same for me. We will leave with the next departing ship. Samuel, he says. He opens his eyes and turns his head to look at me. You were one of the few original settlers left alive. I chose you for a reason. I knew how hard it would be here in the new world, and that only the toughest and strongest would survive. Reverend Hunt told me you were a fighter full of anger and energy. I knew you would make a good settler, and you have. You will be fine here without me. You have your skills, building, farming, hunting, and you have your Algonquin language. You will stay because the colony needs you. I release you from your servitude. I am too stunned to speak. I feel as though I have been dropped from a great height and have landed on my feet, but I don't know where I am. But I'm your page, I say softly. Who will be without my master? Who will I be without my master? Captain Smith shakes his head and continues, To make sure no gentleman decides to grab you up as his servant, I have apprenticed you to John Layden. You will become a carpenter in your own right. I am filled with both sadness and wonder. Reverend Hunt was right. I will not always be a servant, but Captain Smith and Richard both leaving me at the same time? It seems as if I have finally learned to be a friend, to open my heart and care, and now they will both be gone when the ships sail. I take a deep, shuddering breath. Yes, sir, I say. It is the only thing I can think of to say. In the weeks before the ships are ready to leave, it is... Time to bring in the harvest, gather oysters, and bring in hauls of fish and meat, and smoke it all so that it will last the winter. But without Captain Smith to lead us, the men shirk their work, and the gentlemen seem to have but one purpose in life, to make sure Captain Smith goes back to England as a man accused of many wrongs. Rather than a hero, saved our colony from extinction. 
They spend their time gathered in meetings, making lists of accusations against him. They do not even realize that Captain Smith's last act, making peace with Parahunt, has saved their skins. For now. I feel as though there is a noose closing in around Jamestown, ready to strangle all of us here. Chief Powhatan is angry about the coronation fiasco. The new settlers have attacked Indian villages and made enemies where we used to have friends. We have too many settlers to feed, and yet hardly anyone is working to store food for the winter. And we are about to lose Captain Smith. I can see why Captain Smith wants to take Richard with him. Truly, only the strongest and toughest will survive what is coming. I wonder if I have what it takes. There is one bright spot in all of this. Anne Layden will soon have her baby. She is very happy to have other women here now, including a midwife and children to hold and admire as she waits for her own to arrive. It will be the first child born in our colony. Anne says if it is a girl, they will name her Virginia. I have learned something important about from Reverend Hunt. When I lose someone, I should not close my heart to everyone, but should find someone else to fill the empty place. Captain Smith and Richard will soon leave, but I will still have my friends nearby. Namatak, Kenta, and Pocahontas. And here in Jamestown, Anne and John Layden are becoming like my new family. When their baby arrives, he or she will be like my little brother or sister. Get the midwife! Now! Quickly! A large woman, barely doned, tying her apron strings, goes running to the cabin John and Anne Layden share with two other families. The men and children are ushered out, and we begin the long wait. John Layden paces, his face a mask of worry. She'll be all right, I tell him, but I know that birthing kills so many women and babies that John has reason to worry. The hours tick by. I go off to chop some wood, then come back and wait with John. We hear screams from the cabin and crying out in the pain of childbirth. Finally, we hear the lusty wail of a newborn baby. John rushes, runs to the door of his cabin and pounds on it. Let me in, he demands. You wait, the midwife calls back to him, and then you can see your baby girl. John laughs and cries at the same time. It's a girl, he exclaims. The baby is alive and it's a girl. Then his face darkens and he pounds on the door again. And what of my wife? He shouts. Is she well? Yes, yes, she was brave and she's well, the midwife announces. John groans with relief. They're both alive, he says, almost incredulous. My wife and my baby girl. A few weeks later, I am one of the first people Anne allows to hold baby Virginia. She's so tiny, so delicate. Her eyes move, looking at the ceiling above me, and she smiles sweetly, as if she is seeing angels. Anne says she's just making faces because she has gas. <laughs> I offer Virginia my finger. She grasps it and holds it tight. As I look at her, I feel sad. I feel the coming doom. How will she survive the hard times that will soon be upon us? Virginia blows bubbles and grasps my finger even tighter. You must hold on this tightly to life, I whisper to her. Thank you for listening. That was chapters 23 and 24. We're getting close to the end, so stick in there. It's going to be a, a fun ride all the way to the last page.